During Lent, Emmaus Way has been in a series entitled Taking Up the Cross, Rethinking Atonement. In this series, we've wrestled with how to make meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection in our current context. In this particular dialogue, we delve deep into Christian history and ask the question, what does the cross of Jesus say to us about violence, suffering, and sacrifice? The conversation is between myself, Rebecca hewitt Newson, and Brandon Bain, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at UNC Chapel Hill and author of Missions Begin with Blood, Suffering, and Salvation in the Borderlands of New Spain. You'll also hear voices from the Emmaus Way community speaking back to us as we together unpack some of the dangers and also the possibilities that are present in centering the death of Jesus in our story of faith. Thanks for listening. Whenever the never-ending joys of pastoring at Emmaus Way is collaboration and it's collaboration with other pastors, it's collaboration um, with all of the co-ministers in this room, and it's collaborations with artists where we get to kind of talk about the ideas and um, they bring songs and we bring songs and we see what comes up. It's just so delightful. And so thank you all for for what you've been bringing in this series and what you continue to bring because it's moving, very moving. Speaking of collaboration, I'm going to invite Brandon up. While you're coming up, I'm going to say a little bit more about Brandon joining me up here. Um, But first I need to, each week we've kind of been moving us from last week to this week on this journey that we're on together of rethinking the cross. And so last week we spent a lot of time with scriptures and hymns, right, looking at ways that Jesus' death and resurrection were understood immediately by his followers, and then also tracing a bit of that up until now. But we didn't lean, I think, fully into the consequences, right, of one of the most dominant readings that has held sway in Christianity, certainly since Christianity became a religion of empire, certainly in the last thousand years or more, but that narrative that Jesus died, died, Sorry, I said died twice. Jesus died for our sins, that he came specifically to die, not to heal, not to teach, not to proclaim, that he sacrifices himself in our place to pay a price that we cannot pay, but that we most certainly owe because of our sin. That's all one big story. That's kind of taken the lead (laughs) in the last thousand years. Um, This big myth of redemptive violence, right? That the torturous death of Jesus is the only way that things can be made right between God and humanity. And of course, there's a lot in scripture that has led to these connections, right? It's, It's drawn out of scripture in many ways. And I've printed one in the bulletin, right? People would look back Um, especially on this portrayal of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, and they would see Jesus there and make these connections. But I just want to name that it's really not until about a thousand years later, it's a long time, that Jesus' death, that the cross becomes the central way of understanding Jesus' work, right? Where the incarnation 
than just the moment or the act of incarnation, the ministry, the proclamation of the reign of God, and the resurrection, right? Those become downplayed as one is lifted up among them. In the first few centuries, we don't even see crosses as a central piece of worship or art. This comes later. I don't think it's a mistake that it comes later um, when Christianity is embraced as a state religion. Okay, so before though, we launch into that history. I've said a couple of before we do this. Um, I want to name together something that we have said, I think, as a, as a group, right? Not everybody shares this. That's never true in this room. Not everybody shares this perspective. But one thing that I did hear um, from, from those of, some people in the group over the past couple weeks, right, is specifically how this, this theory of atonement, that Jesus died for us because of us, how much it has affected us because it came along with, especially with this heavy emphasis on how wretched and unlovable we are and how we are the reason that Jesus died and we can only be loved. God can only stand to be near us because of that sacrifice. And I think many of us have intuited through our time in church that and what we know through maybe parenting or healthy romantic relationships or any other myriad of ways, we have started to piece together that there might be something off with that idea that that's how God would express love, right? That that would be the way, would be that God would will for Jesus to die as a way to show us love. So we've named kind of psychologically and in terms of the model, what it does for relationships, what could be harmful here, but we are going to spend some time tonight um, in history um, and, and how that idea has, what it has led to, right? Um, the dangers of it and then the possibilities of identifying with Christ crucified and Christ resurrected. And so to do that, Brandon, long time Emmaus Weyer, how many years? Uh, ten and a half. Ten and a half um, years. Um, and also, I think your second job <laughs> after being a part of Emmaus Way, right, uh, as a professor of religious history, <laughs> um, that just some time that gets left over for that. Um, but Brandon's focus is on redemptive violence, and I'm going to let him, he'll, he'll tell us, but that's the centerpiece of his, of his research in history, specifically how it functioned, right, in, in the colonizing efforts. And so we're going to be talking through it together. I'm really grateful for that. Um, and so I'm going to turn it over to you to, to start with some of that historical material. Yeah, just first of all, to echo what you're saying about music. Someone during those 10 years said that Emmaus Way had no business having music this good for a church this small. <laughs> and I felt that way today for sure. Really honored to have you all here. Um, so I'm tasked with narrating 1,500 years of church history in five minutes. Um, so I better get going. Let's start with the cross. And the central preoccupation of my research is about this twinning of suffering and salvation. It's the subtitle to my book. Uh, the book is called Missions Begin with Blood. Uh, salvation and Suffering in the Jesuit Missions of Northern New Spain. And um, what I was interested in wrestling with was precisely what we've been wrestling with in this um, conversation, series of conversations, which is this notion within the history of Christianity that to achieve 
some sort of final triumph, we need tragedy, or to achieve victory, we need violence, and that sort of twinning of um, salvation and suffering, I think is a problem <laughs> for us, and it's a problem because of the way it's been mobilized to justify and look past so much violence in history. And so I'm, I'm just gonna point to a few moments that we might turn to uh, as we situate this conversation. And the first is with a book I read uh, probably 20 years ago by um, a scholar at Barnard College in uh, New York, Elizabeth Castelli, who wrote a book called Martyrdom and Memory, which is about martyrdom in the early church. And particularly she's talking about North Africa and particularly uh, Perpetua and the, the stories that came out of North Africa. And she argues there that uh, the stories of Perpetua and others who died in North Africa in the second and into the early third century were discourses of suffering that helped the early church form a collective identity centered around persecution. Um, and it allowed them to do what, what I just said, to transform tragedy into triumph, violence into victory. And I think that made sense in the early church. We talked about that this week. When you're in a context of persecution in an empire, a way of thinking through um, the real tragedy that's happening to you, the real suffering that's happening as meaningful, right? And as producing something seems helpful and productive. Um, the problem comes a century later, right? When the Roman Empire begins to kind of turn from persecuting the church to slowly identifying with the church, beginning with, of course, Constantine, who um, did not convert, did not, was not baptized till his deathbed because he wanted to kill as many people as he could and then have baptism at the end wash away those sins. Um, he didn't think an emperor, a Roman emperor, could be baptized because you'd have to go on sinning. Um, but since that moment, it introduces a tension of what do you do with this persecuted identity that's so formative to Christianity once Christians hold power. So how do you think of yourselves as persecuted and at the same time wield power? And I think that introduced all sorts of dangers and I'll point to a few of them. Uh, we think about the cultivation of um, the imitation of Christ or the imitatio Christi in the Middle Ages and this idea that we ourselves are to identify with Christ, not just in his life and teaching, but in his suffering and death. And we can do this in a number of ways. We can do it through um, asceticism, through chastity, through deprivation. And of course, religious orders in the Christian world were formed around these vows, right, of um, radical poverty and in many ways of embracing what they saw as the apostolic life, but one that was identified primarily with uh, suffering, or, and if you weren't suffering at the hands of others, you needed to kind of impose that sort of asceticism and deprivation on yourself. Um, <clears throat> in my work, I talk about this as white martyrdom. It's a sort of version of the earlier red martyrdoms that the church suffered, um, and red referring here to blood and white referring to sweat and tears, uh, that there's a way of kind of uh, sublimating the violence of a quick death into daily quotidian sacrifice. And again, I think there are ways that that can be productive, but it also produced a lot of difficulties. And you're probably thinking of some already, like the notion of the blood libel that we've seen come back, unfortunately, in recent years that Jews had killed Jesus um, and that Jews were secretly kidnapping Christian children, specifically in the Middle Ages. And that led to pogroms, um, which often were twinned with passion plays. So, um, if there were a Christian passion play, a presentation, and an, a living out of the suffering of Jesus, Jews knew uh, to hide. 
because that passion play often stimulated um, a recourse to violence. Can I say something? Stop me. I, yeah. Yeah, no, I was just, no me. I'm not stopping you. I just was <laughs> saying, I was just reading Lauren Winner's book lately about the dangers of Christian practice. And also she brought out after um, just acts of communion that often like that celebrating the table would lead to this, it, the same thing, right? Um, the kind of persecution of the Jewish people after celebrating the table because it was a recognition of the body and the blood. That's all I wanted to say. Yeah, no, a book I teach regularly uh, is an autobiography or memoir by a woman named Mary Anton, who was a Jewish immigrant to Boston in the early part of the 20th century uh, from Belarus, from the Pale of the Settlement. And she narrates growing up in the Pale of the Settlement where they knew when Easter came around, Jews locked everything down. You closed your doors, you um, closed your windows because they knew Christians were... In the, in the moment of celebrating the death of their God, we're going to turn that violence on Jews. Um, so we, we have this long history, and it goes into the 20th century in that case. But you can think of other examples. The Crusades, and the way that's positioned as Christians suffering under Muslim or Ottoman rulers in the Middle East. The Inquisition and fears over Jews or former Jews, Gombersos, Muslims and former Muslims, Moriscos, and how they were persecuting Christians in Spain. And then my work focuses particularly on um, the Americas, particularly on New Spain, which was the, the original sort of Spanish effort in what's now Mexico and most of the American West and into uh, Central America and the Caribbean. I'm gonna stop again here because I don't know where we're at at time. No, I think we're good. We're, yeah, we're good. <laughs> nice summary in that short amount of time. Um, and I hope we'll get to hear more too specifically about how it functioned in, in colonization, but I'm, what I've been grateful for in our conversation leading up to this conversation especially um, was sort of your challenge to me on context being enough to sort of get out of the danger, I guess. I, I think for me, when I like look at, um, like for Reve like Re in Revelation example, right, these images of like a slaughtered lamb being like held up as obviously <laughs> Jesus, right, um, crucified and then resurrected. I think about context, and that has felt like enough. Like it's like, well, these are oppressed people, and they, and they're holding this up as like a witness against empire, and so that has felt like I can I can live with it because of that. But I but what you've challenged me to really wrestle with is um, is how murky that is, <laughs> right? And how hard it is to to um, those situations change and flip and, and all kinds of things. And so I just, yeah, maybe you could say more about how, how hard it is to determine, even with recognizing context, this language of identifying with Christ's suffering can be, yeah, can be. Yeah, um, well, yeah, I, I agree. It's tricky to discern if you are oppressed. And- um, well, Not always. But not always, <laughs> but- I'll say it another way. For some of us, it'll be, yeah. A lot of us think that we're oppressed, and we might not be able to discern yeah. the, the relative um, nature of that. And, and there are a lot of ways that folks who have power of, um, assume oppressed and persecuted identities for the purpose of mobilizing violence. So we can think of a lot of examples of this. You can probably think of modern examples of this. But in my work, um, I'm looking at Jesuit missionaries who are involved in pacifying and colonizing indigenous communities. 
and at the same time who are producing enormous amounts of literature, marketing themselves as martyrs and as people who have given up everything for the love of God. And so for me, that's really what I was wrestling with are these people who, I mean, in their very name, they're called the Jesuits, the Society of Jesus. They want to identify with Jesus and, and they imagine that they're doing this out of love and yet they're in contexts in which they're force, forcefully coercing people into situations of epidemic disease. Of course, they don't know um, germ theory, but they know that uh, indigenous children and elderly are dying by the millions, and um, they're trying to make sense of that suffering, and they're trying to make sense of the fact that a lot, a lot of times these native communities are rebelling and killing the missionaries themselves, and they don't want to believe that this is because um, they're the baddies, uh, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, insert meme, are we the baddies? They never do that. Um, they want to believe that they're involved in a cosmic war, sort of retaking territory for God, and um, they're suffering as they follow King Jesus. And so it's that, that twinning of, of an obvious, obvious exercise of colonial power. They're working alongside Spanish soldiers with presenting themselves as sacrificial. Um, yeah, and so something we've been talking about is the difference between groups that intentionally choose to be persecuted. I mean, the Jesuits choose to become a Jesuit, to adopt these religious vows, to go to China or Turkey or India or Mexico um, as a part of their vocation. And one of the questions is, is that different than someone who suffers at the hands of others involuntarily? And I think so often, at least thinking about um, American Christianity, right? Um, specifically probably white American Christianity. Um, we've had to find ways to like lift up people's suffering in a way that feels like, a, like you've said, we need, the, we need the tragedy in order for the victory, but it's almost like we can't handle the tragedy without the victory. Right, and so when we see suffering in whatever way, we have to kind of create a hero out of it, or we have to create someone who's willing to sacrifice out of it. Um, I don't think that that's a mistake. I think it's really deep in the way that we think about um, Jesus. And so um, I'm thinking, especially rereading a lot on the atonement, and, and one of the scholars brought up, um, some, I, I don't even wanna say these words, but, um, when Nancy Pelosi responded to the killing, the murder of George Floyd, um, and publicly said, thank you for sacrificing your life for justice. Remember that? It was appalling. It was appalling in so many ways. And I think a lot of, we knew it. We knew it was appalling. But it also made sense in line with the way that we've talked about Christianity, right? It wasn't a mistake. Um, because we, we do make martyrs out of people who haven't chosen to die for a cause. We do this because we'd rather have heroes than recognize the ways, right, that um, whiteness or capitalism or militarism is just grinding people up or grinding people down all the time. Um, and so if we appeal um, to victims as Christ figures who bear our sins to make the world a better place, right, it's a gross misuse um, of what Christ did and who Christ was, and it's also a further burden, right? 
on, on people of our world, right? Particularly people who might identify as oppressed or crucified um, to be the salvation, right? That it's only when we, we witness that suffering for our very selves that we can identify and we can become better people. And so we've made the crucified savior into a model, right? For people to follow, but mainly a model for black and brown people, women, and people in poverty to follow, right? Not those who are actually wielding the power. Um, they don't necessarily have to follow this, right? Constantine knew it. What I actually appreciate is that Constantine knew it, <laughs> right? He was like, I can't do this and be a Christian. Uh, that's not the case anymore. Uh, we think you could be Christian, you can do a lot of things. Um, and part of that is because it's like, well, Jesus did this thing that gets me off the hook. And I don't have to act like Jesus, but that's a narrative we want to we want to invite other people to do, right? When we are causing their suffering, we want to say, suffering can lead to salvation. What would you say about yeah. that? <laughs> Lots to wrestle with there. Um, um, well, yeah, so I, you know, I got going on this research in the midst of the run-up to the invasion of Iraq in the early 2000s and the way that uh, discourse around 9-11 was being used to justify that. And it's similar discourse of um, the folks who, who passed away um, in the World Trade Center as, um, as martyrs or as uh, having made a sacrifice. And of course we know they didn't choose that at all, right? It happened one Tuesday while they were at work. Um, and so we can quickly do this, right? We can quickly transform any death uh, into um, something that's made more meaningful or more redemptive by labeling it as a sacrifice or a martyrdom. Um, I was thinking about, as we were talking, the temptation, particularly in the U.S., to look to the black church. And, and sometimes even, you know, in looking to someone like Ignacio Eyacuria um, of Latinx uh, traditions like liberation theology as the answer for us. And uh, we recently saw... Uh, a president of my academic guild, the American Academy of Religion, who's an evangel ex-evangelical ethicist, uh, basically write a book on this, a white middle-class guy saying that the black church is the answer to all our problems. Uh, we can look there and there we'll find an authentic form of Christianity, which has some truth to it, but it also has a history going back to someone like Harriet Beecher Stowe of holding out um, Uncle Tom's suffering as the redemption of good white liberals. And I'm wary about that with ourselves, too, as we have this conversation of wanting to find an answer out of this problem by looking to people who have suffered and wanting to find meaning there, which is not to say there's not meaning and beauty that has come out of the, uh, liberation theology or the black church tradition, but I'm wary of um, a primarily white, middle class, mostly comfortable community uh, appropriating that suffering. Yeah. Yeah. This is the part <laughs> where I ask y'all to respond to that. Uh, so I think it's such a, um, it's just a, it's a hard challenge. I mean, there's no, I feel like it's a really hard, um, it's a difficult thing to figure out how do we lift up in some way Christ crucified and, um, and not continue to create more crucifixions. Um, and so, so we wanna invite y'all into the conversation um, to, to wrestle with this with us. 
um, and to think through um, all of the different ways. I mean, we've been through like a lot of ways in the 10, 15, 20, 25 minutes, I don't know, <laughs> um, that, um, that is really challenging, right? It's really challenging to, to lift up the salvific moment happening in the cross, right, and what it can lead, lead to, right? And I, I think that there's also a lot of possibilities there, um, but I, I'm hopeful that some of you all's your wheels have been turning, and I'd love to hear if you're willing to share what is, um, like, what have you been feeling? I think is a specifically might be interesting thing to to note. What have you been feeling as we're we've been just turning out lots of harm and lots of difficulties um, through Christian history um, coming from this approach? What are you feeling in immediate response to it? And where is your, your head and your heart at? And you can say a word from your seat into the crowd, the small crowd, or you can come to the mic if you have something um, more that you'd like to say. There's a mic at the end of the table. I have this effect on audiences. You have, <laughs> it takes a moment. There's a lot to sink yeah. in. You go to the mic. I'm going to be that passive. <laughs> I'm just feeling deeply thankful that we are having an honest, honest, nuanced, historical, non-appropriating conversation about sacrifice and the cross. Because I, I have found often, especially in white progressive church space, you talk about the cross, but we don't really address this tension, right? Um, we say that's that's not really our problem. Or somehow we try to like um, distance ourselves from the violence um, and that many of us have power just by the bodies that we are in. Um, so I'm deeply thankful for the two of you for not shying away and that my first Sunday back was this conversation. I'm beginning to learn a lot about myself and the, um, the systems and the belief systems that I have assumed and not seen. Um, part of it by going through the Confronting Whiteness series that some of us are doing. And um, I, have, I have long questioned the, the basis of my faith in violence and I'm just beginning to see alternatives, but I, th I think I have a lot to learn about, um, you know, I, I have this image of like walking through um, the forest, being the first one to walk through the forest, you walk through spider webs. And um, I, I just feel like there are these, these webs that are on me um, that I've walked through that I can't get rid of that are part of me. Um, one of them is, 
thinking in terms of violence, minor and major. Thanks for that. It's kind of a hard thing for us to admit about ourselves, I think, right? How much it shapes, I mean, we could do a lot of series, we could do a whole series on how our understanding of violence and punishment affect how we understand Jesus, right? Um, but to see how, how deep it goes in our, in our culture and in ourselves, it's hard. Um, I have been feeling and sort of questioning, like, as a person who doesn't know, like, a ton of Christian history, I'm kind of, like, you know, I'm, like, aware of the Crusades and, like, aware of all this, like, all, like, the terrible ways that Christianity has expressed itself throughout history, and I'm, like, how did we get here? How, how does, how did, like, this congregation come out of that? And, like, you know what I mean? Like, like specifically in this country, like I know that there were groups of Christians who weren't like actively murdering people, but a lot of them were. <laughs> um, and it's just, I, I'm in a place where I'm like, how, yeah, how, how is there any group of Christians who are not um, doing that? Just from all the like, you know, that's like, wild it's it's on the one hand I'm like how is this possible on the other hand I'm like well there uh, must be um, I don't know something God maybe uh, like I don't know <laughs> uh, uh, yeah did you guys think about that um, I don't know that that's what I've just sort of been thinking about these past couple weeks can I say Thanks a thought that. on that yeah um, we were talking about there a fancy word to throw in here is the word teleology. It comes from the word telos, which means the end. And um, you know, I, well, I think one of the problems that, I've, that I try to identify with martyr and sacrifice talk is that it's often teleological. It, it's looking towards the end, which is salvation or um, pie in the sky, heaven in the sweet hereafter. Um, and so someone like Malcolm X comes along and says the black church in and forwarding this idea of heaven has actually done us a disservice. Christianity is a danger to black people in America because it, um, it forwards the redemption and it forwards the justice to the future, to the end, to the telos, right? So all the suffering we go through will be made meaningful in the end. And, um, and I, so I think that's one thing, one of our challenges is to think how do we not look past the suffering in the presence towards that telos? But I'd say like on the other side, and thinking about how do Christian communities of hope exist, that's also because we're looking towards an end. We're, we're hoping though that the suffering of the present isn't the only story. And that's where we're at kind of in terms of potential and danger here, I think, yeah. because as we do that move, it can so easily become a way of looking past um, the real oppression or, or difficulty of our bodies and our materialities in order to think about this spiritual redemption uh, in the future. But on the other hand, the, the reason I'm still in it, Chessa, and I came to Emmaus Way on the way out of this Christian thing, um, hoping that there was a community like this, 
And it's still here 10 years later because I think it is a place where we find a hope of something different or a vision of something different together. Um, I've, been, uh, I've sort of had to be thinking about the series on sabbatical a bit, <laughs> um, but I think part of that, Brandon, too, is I think as a community, I've done a lot of reflecting on how so many churches, not UA, um, tries to gloss over the pain of the world, the violence, just the, yeah, empire, sh- the shit of life. Right? We try to gloss over, we try to look forward, and we've even done that in this, yeah, Christus Victor atonement theory. We really are looking past the fact that Christ was executed by the state, right? We're, we're like omitting, we're omitting ourselves from having to bear witness to lynched, crucified bodies in our midst. Um, and a lot of churches have done that. Um, and done a lot of violence in that. And I think Iwe, um, yeah, like, what does it mean not to have, not to make sense of the cross? Maybe the work isn't to make sense of it, <laughs> to make sense of the senseless violence of empire, uh, but to bear witness to it and to be in community um, that refuses to look away but also knows that we're like gazing further too. I don't know if that like, um, I don't know if any of that made sense, but I've been thinking a lot about that and maybe as a, in my body, as a white progressive female trying to make sense of this and be a pastor in a church, maybe that's some of the work. Yeah. The- and maybe we're all, we all struggle with just like these both hands, right? Like holding those things, right? Holding like the material reality and then what might be beyond it, right? Because I think there's tendencies to get stuck all along that way, right? We can get really stuck in, in material reality. And when our material reality is miserable and hard, um, there, is a, there is something we might long for, right? A resurrection, right? That helps us make sense of it, right? But not because we're denying what the reality of what's happening, like, right? Round and around we go. But, but I think that, yeah, that's just one of the biggest challenges, I think, for me, certainly, to like hold on to Christ crucified, Christ resurrected as a model, as a, a moment of God's inbreaking in the world, like as one of the many moments where God is inbreaking. Yeah. And I, I have a sort of a final thought and a final movement that that goes well into, but I'm also aware that somebody else may have something they want to say. So if, you, if you're holding anything and you want to say anything else before I close our conversation, please do. And it won't have to be the final word. Good, because this is a mess. <laughs> Um, One thing that I kept thinking about and and feeling as you were talking um, was about how I, like, I still feel like, um, and, you know, we can question motives and what people do with this and whatever, but I still feel like drawing close to suffering 
is um, positioning oneself in a place where um, we might hear from God the best. <laughs> um, and I like when I hear Brandon talking about um, people misusing martyrdom, it like most of those examples to me sounded like the motive behind claiming the martyrdom was to somehow elevate oneself, somehow to get power or to um, get credibility or to justify why you're doing something violent to someone else <laughs> um, was to claim that mantle of martyrdom. So it seems like to me, um, we have to constantly being, it like be interrogating our own motives um, and that um, claiming, like drawing near to suffering should not be anything we ever use to elevate ourselves or to justify harm. But um, I think it's really difficult for us as humans to um, not have mixed motives or not talk ourselves into justifying things. And so I, like, I think that's where the, the like active movement of the spirit of God is necessary, right? Like if it's all up to our intellect to determine what is the right thing to do and where should I be and what, you know, then like it's going to be a mess, right? And um, so, you know, Chessa kind of <laughs> like maybe even glibly was like, I don't know, God, you know, like, and I mean, I like, I think that's the bottom line is like to continue begging the spirit of God to help us to discern like um, we, how we view our own suffering and how we interact with the suffering of the people around us. I mean, I think Elizabeth brought it home. Um, you know, I was thinking, we had talked about, you know, examples of, you know, Sarah Huckabee Sanders not getting to have dinner in peace and her talking about that as persecution. And in the midst of children in cages at the border, right? And I, I honestly don't think she was insincere in that. I think she thought, maybe thinks of herself as persecuted. And she thinks folks like her are you know, being called deplorable and persecuted by others. And so it's just tricky. And I think that's what you landed on, which is just a constant need to re-interrogate our own motives, right? Because I think it can be really easy, even as we hold power, we are involved in harm, to, to, to present ourselves as persecuted, right? Yeah, I think the final, oh, sorry, yeah, go ahead. All right, yeah, go ahead, yeah. Um, my name is Rachel, and I think one scripture passage that helped me to reframe how I thought of suffering was Luke 4, right when Jesus um, had proclaimed, you know, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the captives. Something I'd never noticed about that till about 10 years ago was he was almost thrown off a cliff and then he, in that moment, chose not to 
go through the suffering of being thrown off the cliff. He kind of said, no, this isn't the suffering that would lead to good fruit and passed through the crowd and said no to that experience of suffering in that moment. And I think learning, hearing that um, 10 years ago helped me to, rec you know, right after doing AmeriCorps and while I was living in a Catholic worker house to recognize like, oh, there's some forms of suffering that are fruitful and that do bear, um, like giving birth to a child, right? Um, but then there's also some forms of suffering that are just bad and that we can choose to say no to and that aren't, don't have redemptive power. So that scripture was, so remained very close to me over the past 10 years. Absolutely, thank you for that. And I think if we need a, if we need some kind of key or something to help us trust Spirit's discernment, right? We could take, if we think the Spirit is moving us to name the situation, right? I can always hold it up against everything else we have written about Jesus too, right? Right? Can't we hold it up against like Jesus' life and teachings and what Jesus says and um, when he proclaims like release to the captives? And, um, and so we have to, and I think we're going to move a little bit in that direction and thinking about how those are also moments of like, atonement and um, and so, but they root us really, really deeply, um, I think, and don't allow us, I think that's kind of what I, where I want to end, is it doesn't allow us to simply look away from the violence of the cross. Um, and I think that that's so important in our community, is this is really hard. It's really been really hard. It's hard for us to claim, it's hard for us to talk about, um, but when we ignore it, or we try to tell it without the violence, right? That we're doing something that um, Ignacio, you said, Ignacio Elicuria? Ella Curia said, right? A Jesuit in El Salvador who was assassinated in 1989 um, said, is not um, sizing it, right? Is taking us into a, um, a mystical approach, but not in a deep way, in an escaping way. And so I, I guess I'm feeling the challenge in our conversation to kind of always be up against it and be wondering about it and yearning for discernment from the spirit uh, about what it means and to ask, I guess, God to continue to remind me that the cross was not a good thing. Jesus' cross wasn't a good thing. No one's cross is a good thing. Right? We, look, we can look beyond the means and ends and what's what we do as Christians, right? And we see what came from there. But in and of itself, it was horrible. And it was sad. And it showed what humanity is capable of in our worst moments. And it is a, a revelatory point on the way to something much better. Right? And it, it demands of us um, to do it better. Uh, I'm thinking about these words from Kelly Brown Douglas. Um, I think they're printed in here, right? The cross is not the end. When Jesus identified with the suffering, it was not for perpetual suffering. That always, right, um, that the people who are suffering, like, God is present there, and so that needs to continue. No, it's a revelatory point. This new life, this new reality has to mean the end of crucifixion. It has to mean the end of oppression. It has to mean an inbreaking of new ways to understand how God works 
instead of with violence, with freedom, with power, with love. Um, so we'll end the here, and we're going to go into confession and absolution, um, and then be at the table. Thank you all for your attention and um, your engagement. And thank you, Brandon. Thank you very much. Hey, whenever you want to talk about blood, death, and violence, I'm your man. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Always.